Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And we have been focusing all month on the birth of Jesus in Luke's gospel. The last two weeks, the announcement and the acceptance. Today, the arrival. Next week, the aftermath. And we want to see and celebrate daily, not just once a year, but all year long, God's greatness and God's goodness in sending a Savior as we focus on the glory of Christ in the story of Christ. So please stand with me as we read. We're going to read Luke 1, excuse me, Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. We are celebrating the, the birth of Christ today. We want to do so all year long, but this is the account of his birth. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, They made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your presence. We thank you for your greatness. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see what you have for us, ears to hear your message to us today, hearts that are open to what you have in your word for us. 
And Lord, we ask for your will to be done. We ask for you to be honored and you to be glorified in us and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. Well, how many times have we heard that? Very familiar words. Good news. Great joy. Now, the the unbelieving world often hijacks Bible words and turns them into shadows of their true meaning. For example, joy has been stolen from its biblical context and turned into something unworthy of its true meaning, unworthy of its name. The world's joy is short-lived euphoria based upon circumstances going our way. The world's joy is feelings based upon us getting what we want. God's joy, on the other hand, is lasting well-being due to what God is doing independent of our circumstances, independent on what's going on. That's why James could say in James chapter 1 and verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. You see, the joy that God gives those who belong to Christ is deep, it is lasting, it is joy that no heartache, no defeat, no misery can defeat. But because of our sin, our joy is often replaced by sorrow and emptiness. But God has provided relief. When we know Jesus Christ, God is always with us. Always present. And because God is with us, we can have joy no matter what. Some of you are in this room today in, in extreme physical pain. Some of you are in this room today in extreme emotional pain or relational situations. You don't know about your job. You don't know if you'll have enough money. You don't know if your spouse is going to stay with you. There are a lot of things we face on a daily basis. A lot of heartache. A lot of pain. But the joy that we have for those who are in Christ, because God is with us, we can have joy no matter what the circumstance. No matter what. Now that's good news. Good news of great joy. But bad news seems to dominate. Seems to dominate our minds and the news. We crave the controversial, the juicy, the the scandalous. We search for it on the internet. We hope for it in conversation. It's the tragedy that usually makes the front page, the train wreck, the downturn, the bleak outlook. Bad news may dominate, but God's good news is what liberates. God's good news refreshes us like cold water to weary travelers. And in our lives, they can get so hectic, so out of control, that news about Christ's birth over 2,000 years ago can seem so distant, so disconnected from where we live. So, so other. But at the same time, it is so startlingly pure and holy. It inspires hope. It brings joy. We see in Luke that God announced the news. Mary accepted the news. 
And now, in Luke chapter 2, the time of fulfilling God's promises had arrived. Accompanied by great joy in heaven, amongst God's angels, and with the chosen few on earth who witnessed the birth of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And it was all for His glory. It was all for God's glory. As we have seen the last few weeks, God's glory, which is hard to understand, is the majesty associated with his revelation of himself to mankind. God's glory is the majesty associated with his revelation of himself to man. His excellence, his worthiness, his reputation, independent of man's opinion. Now, we evaluate the worth of things based upon our subjective opinion of them. When it comes to God's glory... His untainted objective truth about himself is what counts in the equation. See, God's glory is not based upon our evaluation of him. It's not based upon our subjective feelings about him. It is based upon his very nature, the truth about God as seen in the word of God. So by the glory of Christ, what we mean is his reputation. We mean his high position his excellence, his magnificence, his greatness, and we mean the resulting praise and honor and glory that is due to him. Psalm 48 and verse 1 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy to be praised. Glory is due to God because of how great he is. Now when you get to the actual arrival of the baby born in Bethlehem, after all the buildup, it can seem so everyday. It can seem so obscure, so quiet. And, and it really was on many levels. What God did in sending His Son, God in the flesh, God incarnate, was so genius in its simplicity. Genius in its simplicity. Too much fanfare would have called too much attention. To what was going on. God had invaded time and space. Showered his amazing grace upon humankind. In a very universe exploding way. He sent his son behind enemy lines. Into a battle zone. And it was so stealth. It was so perfect. It was a wonderful plan that only God. Could, could pull off. Only God could could pull off this plan. Now, the story is so well known, it, it is very easy to take it for granted. I know that story. I've heard that story since I was a kid. Even the kids, you're saying, I've heard that story since I was a littler kid. I know it. So how do we respond to such understated glory? How do we grip its true significance? How do we respond to such such genius simplicity on God's part? Well, my answer is very simple. We find out how to, how to grip the true significance of the Christmas story. We know how to respond to such understated glory. We know how to deal with such genius simplicity by going to the actual story in the Word of God and seeing what we can see in its plain and straightforward words. Now, lead off 
is that Caesar called for a head count, a census. Count the people, see how many there are. Not because he cared for them, but because he was going to get money from them. Look at verse 1, Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. By A.D. 6, wide-scale censuses were taken every 14 years. This was a tax census instigated by the famous Augustus Caesar. Now, everyone went on his way, verse 3 tells us, to register for the census, each to their own city. They would go to the city where they owned property. Most likely, Joseph owned property in Bethlehem. We read in verse 4 that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, probably on foot, maybe on a borrowed animal. You, you know, you, you see the pictures and it's a donkey. They went 80 miles or so over rough terrain, most likely on foot. And it was there, while they were in Bethlehem, that Jesus was born. You say, well, I know that. I know, I heard. Look at verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Now, nothing in the text indicates that they showed up late at night with Mary about to pop. Nothing in the text says that Mary was about to burst. Now, they have, may have been in Bethlehem for weeks. They went to, let's see what the text says. They went to Bethlehem. Mary was with child. And while they were there, verse 6, the days were completed for her to give birth. They may have been there for weeks. Now, the way the story is commonly told conjures up pictures of going to a local motel or hotel or inn and being turned away with rude innkeeper to boot, right? But inns in those days were dangerous places. Robberies were common. See, I believe that what God was doing was something magnificent in His plan to protect and to provide for His Son to be born in a safe place. He led them to a quiet, safe, warm enclosure away from the crowds, most likely carved out on the side of a hill in an enclosure part of a home. A common error when approaching the Christmas story is to read traditional beliefs into the story based on human tradition. Adding things based to it on our passed down tradition such as the whole no room in the inn thing, which is in the scriptures. But we say it means people treat them harshly and, and rudely. Or that they arrive late at night, in the winter. Mary about to give birth. It's not what the text says. They went to Bethlehem town, and while they were there, the time came for her to have Jesus. Most importantly, Bethlehem, which means house of bread, was the birthplace of the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Bethlehem, the birthplace of the bread of life. Next thing happens is God announces the news to shepherds 
by angels. He announces Christ's birth to the lowly and despised. Verse 8. In the same region, you know the story, you you could probably recite it with me. In the same region, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. It was normal, by the way, whenever an angel showed up around people, to be afraid. Verse 9, an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Now, this was not, you know, normal. In fact, most of the time, if an angel was showing up at your door, you were either going to be dead or something bad was going to happen to you. This is good, though. But it was normal for angelic appearances to be accompanied both by God's glory and extreme fear and terror on the part of humans. The shepherds are just minding their own business watching their flocks. Probably flocks raised for temple sacrifice since they were nearby Jerusalem. They were despised shepherds whose work kept them from participating in the temple activities. They were pasturing their flocks at night Suggesting that it was probably summer, not winter. Roman Christians later adopted December 25th as Christmas, only to supersede a pagan Roman festival scheduled at the same time. Well, the angel told them something very amazing, which has become so commonplace for us to hear this time of year. But here's what the angel told the shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people for today in the city of David, the town that David grew up, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's good news. The gospel is always good news. It means good news. It's about great joy. The result of a true understanding of of Jesus is joy. It's about all people. The message is inclusive of races, cultures, languages, people groups. It's current. Today, it's a message of urgency. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Once you hear about Jesus, you need to respond. It is about a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior is needed because sinners need to be rescued. They need to be saved from their sins. Kind of goes without saying. Christ means anointed one, the Messiah, the promised deliverer. This Savior is Christ, the promised one. And the Lord, the Master, one to be followed and obeyed, one who allegiance is owed, worthy of our loyalty. They got that news. Out there, on a hillside, watching sheep. They got that news from an angel. Well, yeah, we know that, right? We've heard it every year. What happens next? Well, the angels... They have a little, you know, party, I guess, because suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host celebrating God's goodness and God's presence. They said this, in praise to God, 
Glory to God in the highest. You know, in some ways, I wish this would be the first time we ever heard these words. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. The angels leave. And the shepherds say, we got to go check this out. Let's go see. We've gotten some great news. It's not that far away. Let's go. They were amazed. They came and they saw. What the angel had told them was true. It's a historical fact. They, they came in a hurry, by the way. In a hurry, verse 16. And found their way to who they see. Mary, right? Joseph, the baby as he lay in a manger. All just like we've seen for years, right? This is, this is it. And, and, and they experienced being in Jesus' presence. What'd they do? Well, they just practiced Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, which says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of God has risen upon you. They shared the news. Now, I've always pictured this happening. The angels get the message, uh, give the message to the shepherds. The shepherds go to Bethlehem, they see, they're great, it's all excited. Then they leave Bethlehem and go spread the news. It's not what the text says. Look at it. It's in verse, in verse 17. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Who'd they tell first? Mary and Joseph and anyone else that was around. It's so easy to think, well, they knew this. Think about it with me for a moment. Joseph had had a message from an angel. Mary got a message from an angel. And then, silence. And Mary begins to show. They go to Bethlehem. She delivers a baby. And God had been talking to some shepherds. That was a private meeting, by the way. Mary and Joseph didn't know. It wasn't in the schedule. Okay? And then the shepherds show up. And they, they say to Joseph and Mary, this is what we've heard about this child. Today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Can you think about what confirmation that was to Mary and Joseph of what they'd been told by God through an angel. It's amazing. Mary treasured those words in her heart. She kept thinking about them, pondering them in her heart. All who heard wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Surely there may have been someone close by who heard that didn't believe, that were skeptical. Joseph surely believed. Mary pondered these things, treasured these things in her heart. And the shepherds, they went back to their job. They went back to tending sheep. That's what they do. 
But when they went back, verse 20, they glorified and praised God for all that they had heard and seen just had been told them. They had got a word from God. They saw fulfillment of the word from God. They rejoiced. They praised God for it. It's an amazing story. We, we lose the impact due to familiarity. It's an amazing story. Now, in the arrival story in Luke 2, the details of which are so great, the facts it contains are so important, but there are several noteworthy things here that I don't want you to miss as they relate to the glory of God seen in the story of Christ. The first thing that I want you to see is God's greatness. God's greatness. See, I think an artificial contrast is often made as we come to the Christmas story, or at least a lesser one is made primary. It's easy to think of the story in terms of whether people made room for Jesus. There was no room in the inn. And we make a big deal about that. And people talk about making room for Jesus in their hearts, and and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But I think the big contrast here in this account is the glory of God versus the glory of man. Jesus was entering a battlefield. A battle of cosmic proportions. And it didn't take long for the enemy to catch on. He instigated Herod against him. And then you had the slaughter of the innocents. But go with me back to verse 1 of Luke chapter 2. The first words of this most famous part of God's word, this, this, it gives us the setting. Caesar Augustus. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Octavian. He was ruler of the entire Roman world, literally all the inhabited earth at that point in time. The great nephew of Julius Caesar. He fought his way to power by defeating Antony and Cleopatra. He was the first to be called Augustus. Augustus means holy. It means revered. Augustus Caesar. Holy Caesar. Revered Caesar. Worshipped Caesar. The Roman Senate voted to give him the title Augustus, and he did not refuse. He should have, but he did not refuse. And up to that point, that title Augustus in that culture was reserved only for the gods. While he ruled, people started thinking of Caesars as gods. At the time Luke wrote, Some Greek cities in Asia Minor had adopted Caesar's birthday, September 23rd, as New Year's Day. And they called him, get this, their Savior. Some people called him Savior of the whole world. Rome was at peace. In the forum, the doors of the temple of war had been closed for 10 years. They stayed closed for 30 more. A monument had been erected to recognize the peace that Caesar had brought to the people. There was peace. There was the absence of war, but not real peace. Not God's peace. 
It was a a terrorizing peace. None dared question his authority. Rome and Augustus had beaten every opponent into submission. At the controls of the known world at that time was a self-proclaimed, universally accepted Lord and Savior. This was the context into which Jesus Christ was born. And Luke is showing a contrast. The real Savior had finally come. All imposters would be banished. All imposters were to be rejected. One king only. One sovereign only over all. So at face value, this passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 2 is all about Christ versus Caesar. Christ versus Caesar. It's not about people refusing to make room for a baby being born. It is about he who was humble and gentle in heart versus he who was pompous and arrogant in heart. It was about the humble king of kings and lord of lords and an arrogant human ruler. God the son who had allowed himself to be made lower versus a man who allowed himself to be worshipped as God. Luke is showing how great Jesus is compared to Caesar or any human ruler, any human leader. So high above him, yet considered by most to be so much lower. Think about it. A little baby born in humble circumstances compared to a powerful ruler? Kent Hughes said this, the baby Mary carried was not a Caesar. Not a man who would become a God, but a far greater wonder, the true God who had become a man. Only Jesus is truly great. The Christmas story story shows God's greatness. God's greatness. There is another significant element here in this story, and again, we can miss it due to over-familiarity. It is God's presence. God's presence with his people. Now, in the Bible, whenever an angel would bring good news, he would usually say, do not fear. Do not fear. It was assurance to the person that God was with them, that he was on their side for blessing, It was God being with his chosen ones and giving confirmation. Now, all throughout Scripture, God promises to be with his people. I love Exodus 33, 14, where God said to Moses, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. He had just said, Don't go with us. I'm not going up if you're not with us. (laughs) I need assurance. And God gives him assurance. My presence will go with you. I will give you rest. Psalm 23 and verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You're with me. That's why I will fear no evil. Isaiah 41 and verse 10. God says, do not fear, for I am with you. I'm with you. Matthew 28, 20. Jesus promised, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you always comfort 
It's assurance. It, it brings confidence. It breeds confidence. God with us. Emmanuel in Hebrew means God with us. Don't miss the reality of what God did because it is so commonplace to us now. The incarnation. God in the flesh. It's unfathomable. It's it's incomprehensible. Go with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So it's pretty clear the word is God. And the word made the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overpower it. Does not comprehend it. And then you go down to verse 14. The word, God, became flesh... And dwelt among us, and we saw his what? Glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. The perfect balance of grace and truth. Some of us major on truth to the exclusion of grace. Some of us measure on grace to the exclusion of truth. Jesus, full of grace and truth. The perfect balance. The God Almighty became one of us to do what we could never do. Sinless, perfect, spirit-led Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. J.I. Packer said this, God is Savior, active in sovereign love through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue believers from the guilt and power of sin to adopt them as his children and to bless them accordingly. God adopts us as his children and blesses us accordingly. We are blessed with his presence. We are blessed. We can't, Jesus said, you can't do anything apart from me. So God is great and God is present. Two significant things that we, that we gather from the Christmas story in Luke 2. But what does a growing awareness of God's greatness and a growing awareness of His presence lead to? Well, it leads to what the angels promised, great joy. Good news of great joy. See, when the angel appeared to the shepherds, he said he brought them good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. God is the giver of joy. We look desperately for things to save us from pain and loneliness and despair. And then we make those things our functional saviors, our Caesars. When there is only one true Savior who brings true joy. See, joy is not found in all the things that we try and find it in. But in God himself, specifically in a relationship with Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. Philippians 4 and verse 4, writing to believers, it says this, Rejoice always, 
Again, I will say it, rejoice. Two times there. To rejoice means to have that deep and abiding sense of well-being because God is with us, independent of circumstances. It operates outside of circumstances. See, rejoice is not a feeling, but an action based upon truth. It means to remember the joy. It means to remind yourself of the joy that you have in Jesus. You may be sitting here today and you say, I don't have any joy. Maybe it's because you're basing it upon feelings. You don't feel joyfully. doesn't mean you don't have joy. It means you don't feel it. Joy is not a feeling-oriented thing. We think of it primarily as a feeling-oriented thing. So let's just say you're a believer in Jesus today and you say, I don't have any joy. Well, maybe it's because sin has robbed you of your joy. What did David say in Psalm 51 after he had sinned so grievously? After he had confessed his sins, after he had come clean with God, he said this, Restore unto me, what? The joy of your salvation. Let's just say today you're not a believer in Jesus. You you haven't come to faith in Christ. You're wondering, or maybe you're saying, I don't want him. I don't believe that. I'm just here for Christmas. I wore the suit and everything. Well, let's say that. But let me tell you this. There will be no joy in your life without Christ in your life. There is no joy, no true joy, apart from Jesus Christ. You might have some um, human idea of joy, and you might call it joy, but it's not true joy. You need to follow Jesus. You need to believe his word. You need to trust him for everything. You need, and, and then, you know what happens? When you believe Jesus and, 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 and believe his word and trust him for everything, his joy comes along. You experience joy. It's like Michael W. Smith saying, when I walk with God, his joy will always come. It happens. Now go with me to John chapter 15. Let's talk about joy. Let's talk about the joy that Jesus gives. John chapter 15. Jesus is calling himself the true vine. God the Father is the farmer, the fine dresser. And he says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he prunes, painful process, so that it may bear more fruit. He says, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then go down to verse 11. Here's what he says. He says, these things, what things? Well, all the things he's been saying. I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. So you'd have joy in Christ. He's saying, the things I'm saying. See, the joy that Jesus has with the Father is ours to experience and we get it through His Word. Jesus said, These things I have spoken that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. If you're still not convinced, go with me to John 17. John 17, Jesus is, the God the Son is praying to God the Father. It's called the high priestly prayer of Christ. He, he speaks things and He lifts His eyes to heaven and he says father the hour has come Jesus came for one reason and one reason only to die for sinners that's why he came to earth that's why we're celebrating his birth in Bethlehem he says father the hour has come 
glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, that's all believers, to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life. You ever want to know what that is? What's eternal life? Well, Jesus says that they may know you. So knowing God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In the beginning was the word. Now, drop down to verse 13. Now I come to you, God the Son, coming to God the Father, and these things I speak in the world so that they, who is they, that's his people, his followers, Christians, born-again people, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Verse 14, I have given them your word. Jesus' joy, God's joy comes through the truth that we know about God and believing those things and living those things and having your whole life wrapped up in those things. These things I have spoken that your joy may be full. Nehemiah 8, 13 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. God's joy is the strength of believers. No one can steal your joy away from you. You can give it away. You can lose it. I love Habakkuk 3 in verse 17, where he says, even if there's no cattle in the stalls, even if there's no fruit on the vine, even if everything gets taken away from me, even if, I am going to rejoice in God, my Savior. God, my Savior, I'm going to rejoice. Why? Because the battle is raging, but he has won the war. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. The battle belongs to the Lord. And because of our sin, our joy is sometimes negated, sometimes replaced by sorrow and misery. But God is great, and he is present, and he gives great joy to his people. And that is where the cross comes in. That's where the cross comes in. His sorrow bought our joy, bought our freedom, bought our forgiveness, bought our life. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21 say, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with every good thing that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Now, here's how God designed it. We would always be sheep in need of a shepherd. It's always going to be that way. We will always be sheep in need of our good shepherd. And the reason is found in the last part of verse 21. These words, through Jesus Christ, to whom be what? Glory. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. As John Piper put it, glory, praise, honor, admiration, esteem, wonder, all these belong to God and to our great shepherd and not to us. The glory of the great shepherd work is theirs, not ours. We get the care. He gets the tribute as the shepherd caregiver. 
We get the protection. He gets the honor as the shepherd protector. We get the guidance. He gets the esteem as the shepherd guide. We get the provision. He gets the trust as the shepherd provider. We get the joy of being loved like this. He gets the glory. God being glorified is referred to three times in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. God announces the news to the shepherds, verse 9, and it says that the glory of God shone around them, the Shekinah glory of God. In verse 14, the heavenly host says, glory to God in the highest. They gave credit to God for what was going on. And when the shepherds left, verse 20, they were glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard. They were joyful. They were joyful. And God is most glorified when we find our deepest joy in Him. Because God is with us, we can have joy no matter what. No matter what the circumstance. See, when we leave this earth, we will live forever with our risen Lord, those who are believers. And in Christ, our joy is made full. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And all because one day, some 30 years later, Christ died for sin. When Augustus Caesar died, some people comforted themselves with the thought that he really didn't die because gods don't die. Futile. Delusional. But because Jesus died for us, we are comforted with the truth that if we believe, we will never die. Christ was born to die. Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. See, when Christ was born, God was saying, this is war. This is war. He was declaring war on sin and death. The battle had been ongoing for centuries. This was God sending troops. More accurately, this was God sending troop to deliver the final blow. One man on one mission settled forever, soon to be accomplished, and already accomplished in Christ, all for God's glory, so that he who is truly magnificent would receive glory forever. So that Jesus Christ, who is truly magnificent, would receive all praise and honor and glory forever. That's Christmas. Christmas. 